Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. Well, good evening, everybody. Christmas is coming. We've been singing a lot about Christmas. You know, I wonder why we don't spend a whole month singing about Easter, the resurrection. But we start singing and thinking about the birth of Christ. Uh, Well, now it's Halloween time. Used to be Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving. But uh, we start singing Christmas carols around Halloween time in October. And uh, throughout the whole month of November uh, and then December. And so I'm going to talk to you about Christmas. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to use the Gospel of John. You know, the, we have, we have uh, four accounts of the birth of Christ. Matthew and Luke. Well, three accounts, rather. Matthew and Luke and John. And John gives us the theological significance of the birth of Christ. So turn with me to John chapter 1 for our Bible study and sermon. <clears throat> I never know what to call anything where I'm teaching or preaching when I'm asked to fill in for somebody. And it usually comes out about the same. So uh, John chapter 1, and we will begin reading with verse 14 if you've got a copy of the scriptures with you. And I'm going to be reading from the real Bible. The King James translation. Uh, So uh, John chapter 1, beginning with verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, the doctrine which this text deals with is the doctrine of the Incarnation. I don't know when I first knew that the word Incarnation referred to a great Christian doctrine. I'd never heard of Incarnation. I don't know why in my growing up uh, in church and Sunday school that the word Incarnation never was impressed upon my mind. I never heard of Incarnation. I heard of Carnation. We had a pet milk called carnation. What does incarnation mean? Well, it's really built upon the Greek word, and it means the enfleshment of the word of God. And I suppose that's the reason why that that canned milk was called carnation, because it used to be a a milk for children, babies that put flesh on their bodies, so I guess that's the reason why it was called carnation. I don't know why the makers of carnation called it carnation, but I've always assumed since I knew when I learned what incarnation is, that carnation, the milk carnation, was called carnation because it put flesh 
on the bodies of children or babies. Well, I'm going to deal with the doctrine of the incarnation uh, this evening based upon John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the first thing that comes to my mind as I look at this passage is the implication of the incarnation. Now note this statement in verse 14, and the word was made flesh. Now that tells me that there was something that, that was, there was some kind of existence before the, our Lord became a human body. The word was made flesh. And I think about the eternality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know, of course, as Christians, that uh, Jesus did not have his beginning with his birth in Bethlehem. Jesus always was. Jesus, list, uh, Jesus existed in eternity. Now, John really begins with that statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that tells me several things about the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It tells me that he pre-existed as God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus existed pre-existence as deity. But the text also tells me that Jesus pre-existed distinct from God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, face to face with God. Now that's the great mystery of the Christian faith. I don't know of any doctrine more difficult to explain and understand and the doctrine of the Trinity. But we only believe in one God. We are not polytheist. We are monotheist. We believe that there's only one God, but this one God existed in three persons. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how you add that up to be one is a mystery, but the Bible tells us that uh, mathematically it may be incorrect, but biblically it is correct to say that we believe only in one God. But Jesus existed as God, but he existed as a distinct personality in the Godhead. In the beginning was God, and in the beginning uh, uh, Jesus existed face to face with God. But the Bible tells me that Jesus not only existed as God and existed as distinct from God, but Jesus existed as the creator of all that there is. And the text says in John chapter 1, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and for him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He existed as creator. He preexisted as creator. And Jesus preexisted as the revealer of the whole Godhead. The word, word. He, it is called the word. Now, Jesus has a number of titles or designations in the scriptures. We sang about them in, at Christmas time, Emmanuel. His name shall be called Emmanuel. That was a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He's called Emmanuel because that means God with us. When Jesus became a human being and walked among the people of his time, Jesus, the very God himself was walking among the people of that day. His name is called Emmanuel. He existed as a communicator and revealer of God. He, the word word indicates a communication. We communicate with words, and Jesus is the communicator of God, always has been, is now, 
and will always be in eternity. Uh, when we get to heaven and uh, when God begins to wind things up or down and, uh, and eternity begins, we see someone on, a th someone on the throne. Who is it? Who is it that we will see in heaven? We'll see the Son of God. He's always been the one to reveal the whole Godhead to us. He is the Godhead bodily, the fullness of the Godhead bodily and dwelt among us. I was in a Bible study years ago in St. Louis, and uh, the pastor asked me to deal with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And dealing with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I began with a statement about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the function of each of these persons of the Godhead. And when I talked about the second person of the Godhead, the basic function of the second person of the Godhead is to reveal the whole Godhead to us. And I talked about in heaven, who will we see? We will see Jesus. And I had a lady in the audience uh, in the question time. She said, you mean, you mean we will not see the Father and we will not see the Holy Spirit? And I said to her, I said, uh, I sense a little sense of disappointment in that question. But I said to her, when you see Jesus, you'll not be disappointed at all because you'll, do, you'll have the whole Godhead revealed to you in Jesus. He's the Word. He's the one that communicates God to us. And so the text gives us something about the implication of the incarnation. It's, it concerns the pre-existence of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus. Now the second thing about the incarnation stated in this text is the nature of it. When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about the fact, the fact when Jesus, the son, second person of the Godhead, took upon himself human flesh. He became enfleshed. We're talking about the birth of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Son of God into the world. What was the nature of that enfleshment? The nature of the incarnation? Well, three things that I see from this text that tells us something about the nature of the incarnation. Number one, it was real. The body of Jesus was a real flesh and uh, blood and bones body. The word, the, the, the statement says, and the word was made flesh. And I think it's significant that uh, this text does not say, and the word was made a man. A word was made a human being. The reason why John said, the word became flesh or was made flesh, he emphasizes the reality of the incarnation of Christ. Because in John's day, there was a heresy. And that heresy was Jesus did not have a real body. He only was a phantom. He was an apparition. He, was, he did not have a real body. That heresy was called Gnosticism in the first century. And uh, it was built upon Greek philosophy. You know, Platonism, uh, Plato's philosophy was the only real thing there is, is in the realm of the spirit. Anything that's phenomenal, anything that you can feel, touch, or see physically was, was, uh, was uh, imperfect. It was not the real thing. It was the spirit that was behind it. And so that, brought, that, was, that philosophy came into the Christian faith. And there were those who used that philosophy to say that Jesus 
could not have a real body. Anything material was inherently evil, imperfect. And if Jesus had a body, then mean that there was some flaw in Jesus. And so the Gnostics in their philosophy brought that into the Christian faith and they said uh, Jesus could not have had a real body because anything material was inherently inferior, was inherently false or evil. And so Jesus didn't have a real body. And so John wanted people to know that Jesus had a real body. He was made flesh. And so there were those appearances of, of uh, human beings that, were not, had, that did not have real bodies. For example, angels appeared to have a body. But angels did not have a real body. Angels had the appearance of human beings as you find the record of them in the scriptures. But angels were spirit beings. And for God's own purpose of revelation and minister to us, sometimes an angel took upon himself the appearance of a human being. And uh, ladies, always it was a man uh, in the scriptures. Uh, we have three angels that are named in the scriptures. And uh, uh, only three, uh, Lucifer, who fell, Gabriel, and Michael, and uh, all of them are male names. Now we say you ladies are angels, and even <clears throat> even uh, the preachers of the seven churches of Asia were called angels, but the word angel itself just means messenger. Well, I don't know why I'm getting to that, but uh, <clears throat> but I'm talking what I'm uh, uh, what I started to say is angels appeared to have bodies, but you couldn't cut an angel. An angel wouldn't bleed. Angel was a spirit being. But Jesus had a real body. He had real flesh, real bones, real blood. And if you'd cut Jesus, he would bleed. And he actually bled when he died upon the cross. And he was able to suffer. And uh, he was able to uh, minister to people in the human body. His incarnation was real. It was flesh. But the second thing about the nature of the incarnation, it was humiliating. The word flesh is used in different ways in the scriptures. Two basic ways it's used in the scriptures. Uh, well, three basic ways it's used to refer to our bodies. We're flesh. It's used in the Old Testament mainly to talk about the frailty and the weakness of the human body. We're nothing but flesh, like the flower, like the grass that fades away. We're flesh. It's used in the New Testament in a unique way. It's used in the sense of our sinfulness, our sinful nature. But when the Bible says that Jesus took upon himself flesh, he was made flesh, I think it goes back to the Old Testament sense of his weakness, his weakness. He experienced as a human being, he emptied himself of something. In fact, the book of Philippians, our pastor's been preaching through Philippians, and some of you are grateful that he finished it yesterday, or not last Sunday. No, he did a great job. The book of Philippians could go a long, long time more. But uh, uh, the, in, in the book of Philippians, we find Jesus emptied himself. 
He took upon himself. He who existed in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. The real question in theology among Bible scholars is this, of what did Jesus empty himself? And many have different viewpoints. Liberal theology says Jesus emptied himself of his deity. He had no sense of deity when he became a human being. Obviously, that's not right. Jesus was God in the human flesh. And there was a viewpoint that says Jesus emptied himself of the attributes of deity, such as his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence. I, I don't accept either one of those. You find sometimes Jesus exercising the attributes of deity. He expressed omniscience. He expressed omnipotence. He could control the wind and the seas. No, Jesus didn't empty himself of his deity or his attributes of deity. I think it's explained in the sense of glory. You look at this passage, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When you read the New Testament carefully, you'll find that there was a glory which Jesus left, expected, and he expected to have it restored to him. In John chapter 17, what I call the uh, Lord's Prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, restore to me the glory which I had with thee in the beginning. There was a glory which Jesus left when he came a human being. And there was a glory... <coughs> which he retained. And it really is a, the really explanation of this is the different uses of glory in the Bible. The classic use of the word glory in the Old Testament is that it refers to a visible manifestation of deity. A visible manifestation of deity. For example, the common expression, the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. The classic example of the glory of God in the Old Testament is that Shekinah glory, that's that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. What did that represent? That represented the very presence of deity. You recall when the tabernacle was built and the dedication of the tabernacle that was built, that cloud, that cloud filled the Holy of Holies. And the priest could not go in for days because of the awesome presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And when the Temple of Solomon was built, the same thing took place. That cloud left the tabernacle and entered the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Solomon. The priest could not go in because of the awesome presence of God. The glory of God in the Old Testament really represented a visible manifestation of deity. And so when the Bible says Jesus became a, uh, took upon himself flesh or was made flesh and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, but there was a glory. What did Jesus empty himself of? He emptied himself of the visible manifestation, the visible presence of God. Not, not the presence of God, but the visible manifestation. What, what did people see? when they saw that baby in the manger. 
Now, because we look upon it with faith, we sometimes have the picture of a radiant uh, light, a halo. But what did people see? What did the shepherds see when they came to look upon that baby? They saw nothing but a baby. They didn't see anything extraordinary about the baby. What did people see when they grew up with Jesus in Nazareth? They saw nothing but a boy, a teenager. And what did people see when Jesus became an adult and began his public ministry? They saw nothing but a man unless they looked upon him by faith and saw something more than just a human being. That's what I mean when I say that Jesus' incarnation was a humiliating uh, uh, experience as, as far as Jesus is concerned. He left that glory, that, that visible appearance of deity when he became a human flesh, when he became upon him human flesh. And so he was able to suffer. He was able to die physically on the cross. He emptied himself. It was a humiliating time of Jesus' existence. And then the third thing I would say, however, about the nature of the incarnation, it was unique. It was humiliating. It was real, but it was also unique. Now, what was unique about the flesh of Jesus? What was unique about the body of Jesus? What was unique about the, uh, the time when Jesus took upon himself a human body? It was sinless. He took upon himself no sin. You see, you and I, when we're born, we're born with sin. We're born with a sinful nature. You know why? We all came from a sinful father. I'm talking about Adam. We all descendants of Adam. When Adam transgressed the law of God, he became a sinner. And from that point on, both he and the woman, Eve, beget nothing but sinners. Jesus had no human father. Sin comes, ladies. I said there are no angels in the scriptures. I know we got some angels here, but, but uh, there nothing appeared in the Bible. But uh, we are sinners because of Adam, not because of Eve. We go back to Adam. The one head of the human race, the federal head of the human race is Adam. And because of that, we are sinners. Jesus had no human father. Therefore, the sin line did not come to the Son of God. And that, that's the reason why there is a second Adam. And when we are saved, we become related to the second Adam who had no sin. That's the uniqueness about the incarnation of Christ. He had no sin. He became a sin offering for us, but he himself had no sin. And so that's the nature of the incarnation. It was real, it was humiliating, and it was unique. Now the third thing about the incarnation, and that's the purpose of it. Why did the Word, the eternal Word, why was it made flesh? Well, three reasons I see in this text. Number one, he came to reveal God to us. Now, I spoke about the revelatory nature of the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, but we find this statement. No man 
has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now when you, uh, when you see that statement, if you don't understand uh, the harmony of it, uh, you can think that there's contradictions in the Bible. For example, you read the Old Testament and you will find it said of certain people, he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. One of the classic examples, of course, is that great statement of Isaiah in chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. But you find other examples in the Old Testament that certain people saw the Lord. But here the text says, no man has seen God at any time. Now how do you harmonize that? You harmonize that by the fact that the revealer of the Godhead has always been the second person. And if you read carefully the New Testament, you'll find Isaiah, in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, the Lord that he saw was the Son of God was the second person of the Godhead. No man can look fully upon the holiness of the Godhead and live. And so Jesus Christ took upon himself human flesh to exercise the function of the revealer of the whole Godhead. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom, bosom of the Father, he hath showed him. And so Jesus took upon himself flesh in order to reveal God to us. And by the way, nobody knows God except they know the Son. He is the one who reveals the Godhead to us. No one can say or one can say, I know the Lord and never believe in Jesus, but they are liars because no man has seen God except they come to Christ. And only through Christ is the Godhead revealed to us. And the second reason that I stated in this text about the purpose of the incarnation, he came to bring salvation to us sinners. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. But in, the, in verse 16, and of his fullness... Have all we received, and grace for grace, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Were there's no, was there no grace in the Old Testament? Yes. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I'm telling you, uh, church, nobody has ever been saved without the grace of God. From the time of Adam until the last human being is translated, nobody is ever going to get to heaven without the grace of God. Yes, there was grace in the Old Testament. Was there no truth in the Old Testament? Yes, there was truth in the Old Testament. Then what does this say? Grace, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It was Jesus that harmonized grace and truth. You see, if you just use one of them, if you, if you just emphasize grace, where's the truth? Now, the truth tells us that we're sinners, we're condemned. The law is an expression of the truth of God. If we just dealt with truth, the truth of the matter is we're all sinners. 
And the truth of the matter is none of us deserve heaven. Don't ever say, I want to get what I deserve. No, I don't want to get what I deserve. Then how? It was Jesus who brought truth and grace together in his redemptive work. Truth and grace became friends and kissed one another in the atonement that Jesus made. He harmonized truth and grace. When you see Jesus dying on the cross, you see truth expressed because there my sins were judged. God is dealing truthfully with my sins. You might say, can God just forgive us? No. Sin has its penalty, and we must all pay it or have somebody else to pay it for us. And Jesus paid it for us. That's truth. But you see, Jesus dying on the cross, there's the great expression of the grace of God. Grace and truth came together in Christ. He came to bring salvation to us sinners because in the saving act of God, God deals truthfully and he deals gracefully with us through Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. And then the uh, final reason, the purpose of the incarnation he came to meet the spiritual needs of the saved. The statement, of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. That statement, grace for grace, that tells me that the grace of God not only saved me, but the grace of God sustains me. What does God give you when the grace for this day runs out? Just more grace. The grace of God is a fountain that never runs dry. It is a river that never goes uh, dry. It is a lake that you cannot exhaust. And don't ever forget that. Don't ever think that you are, uh, you are going to run out of grace. It's like a little mouse coming down by the Mississippi River and saying, I must watch what I drink because my other little missus, my missus will not have anything to drink. You are, it's, it's impossible to exhaust the grace of God in your life. Why? Because of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that grace is free, that grace is abundant, that grace will never run out. It saves us, and it keeps us, and it sustains us. Oh, the glorious doctrine of the incarnation. That's what John deals with. That's the theological significance of what we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas, when God, the eternal, preexistent Son of God, took upon himself human flesh. And you know, apparently, according to the Philippians, and I think the rest of Scripture, Jesus will always now exist in that body. That body was raised from the dead in the resurrection of Christ. Our bodies are going to be made perfect and most of us here tonight can thank God for that. Amen. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, the scars 
of the crucifixion remain in his body. And that tells me that body that ascended to heaven, Jesus still is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Oh, such a mystery. And as folks looked upon the body of our Lord at his resurrection, one of these days, you and I will look upon that body. That body, that Son of God, that eternal Son of God, who took upon himself human flesh in his birth, kept that human flesh in his death, kept that human flesh in his resurrection, kept that human flesh in his ascension, and now exists at the right hand of the Father in that body. And I think throughout eternity we'll see those scars to remind us of what it, what it took to redeem us sinners. The doctrine of the incarnation. And the Word was made flesh. Thank you for listening to First Importance. It is our prayer that you have been blessed by this podcast. We welcome you to join us in person for worship at First Baptist West Memphis on Sundays at 1045 a.m., where our desire is to love God, care for one another, and share the gospel. Thank you.